Hi, my name's Bob, but I'm an alcoholic. The grace of God and the power of the A program and sponsorship, I have not found necessary to take a drink since the 10th of December, 1967, and for that I'm very grateful. <clears throat> Charles and I are going to get to know each other a little better. We're going to rabbit hunting this afternoon, if you can believe that. I've never... So that'll be a new experience for me. I've never done that. So I get to go home and tell my wife that I've... I really enjoyed this weekend. This has been very special for me. There's a flavor in your conference that I very much enjoy. I've had the privilege to be at one or two of your other tri-states, but uh, I like your spirit. I like the feeling. Uh, you can almost, when you go someplace, it's almost like a personality of the collective group, and uh, it isn't always as warm, and it isn't always as energetic as, as it is here, so that's, you ought to be complimented on your roundup and the spirit of what you bring to it. Um, I enjoyed hearing Father Martin. I haven't heard him for a number of years, and it was interesting. Dick and Peg are two of my favorite people in the world, and I went out yesterday at lunch and talked to Dick. I had a bunch of stuff going on, so I missed Don's talk, which I will get to hear when I when I get home. Um, I thought Peggy went overboard last night, though. I think... Uh, <laughs> I mean, she started out with a good thing and then just took it just, you know, about an inch too far. I mean, it was, and that poor Janice, I don't think, uh, I think when you mark someone and they live in a large city, you can still have your anonymity, but when you mark someone like that and they live in a small city, I mean, her life, her life could be over. They, uh, I mean, I would hesitate to hit my fist up with Peg. I mean, I just, you just would never have any idea. But if I confess that I was a sashayer, you know, it might, it might come out in public. I? And that bird story is getting old. I think. I, if I included every time a bird crapped on me in my talk, I'd, I mean, I'd take about two hours. I, I have a bird story. And, uh, story about a farmer who uh, is out in the woods and he finds an eagle's nest, in the, but there's no eagle, but there's an egg in the nest. He takes the egg and he brings it home to his farmyard and he puts it in with the chicken. And the egg hatched and he raised the eaglet like the chickens and the eaglet grew up and pecked and hunted around the barnyard and flutter its wings and fly three or four feet and lived its whole life. It was very old. It was towards the end of its life. And one day he was out pecking on the yard and he looked up and there was this gorgeous, wonderful, majestic bird flying in the sky. He looked over at the other chicken and he said, what's that? And the chicken said, that's an eagle. He said, they're the most magnificent birds in all the world. The sky, they, <clears throat> the sky belongs to the eagles. We're chickens. We belong on the ground. And I think that's my A story. That many of us were born eagles, looked like chickens, and would never have had a chance to find out who we really were had we not got a chance to get the Alcoholics Anonymous. Because what my path was on, it was not working for me. And uh, what life I have is because of you, because of the program of the Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the most frustrating things in the world is to think that you have the ability and talent to do things in time after time after time after time after time to destroy many of the things that you touch or not finish almost everything you start. And then to come here, you know, I hear people talk about, uh, God, I was reminded I saw Bob and Juanita Wessel. I, I'd forgotten it was that early in my AA. I think I was only three or four years sober when I met Bob and Juanita up in Duluth, Minnesota, and uh, given an AA talk. Uh, those memories about where your life was. There are times I get caught up, and that's part of what happened to me before I came here this weekend. You can just get caught up in your own stuff. I have a tendency to get a little too serious, so if I you can kind of stand up in the middle of my talk or do something, I won't do what Dick Martin does to get humor going. But I, uh, <laughs> Peggy talked about you know the people in California wanted to see her bird nest. I think they wanted to see your Santa Claus. That's what I think. I think they, <laughs> they keep inviting Peggy and Santa, and I don't know what that is, but I think that... <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what my life was like, and then how I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll talk a little bit about what's going on in my life today. I started drinking when I was 14, 13 or 14, not sure, it was my freshman year in high school. I went to a high school that was on a college campus. 
I was a real insecure kid. I was quite small, four foot eleven, weighed ninety-five pounds. And I took the physical for high school. But I always had a big mouth. I was always in trouble. I got kicked out of grade school. I've got a son right now who's having some issues with school, and I keep forgetting how my school career was. I was attention deficit. I was I was sent home from school forty times. I mean, I mean, it, and I wasn't. It was it was just for stuff. I just was fidgety and talkative, and the only really bad thing I did is they locked me in a. There were three of us that were. Kids that could never be in the same class. And of course, we sought each other out at every opportunity. And they, they locked me in a room one time in the library, and we cut all the nudes out of the National Geographics and pasted them on the on the wall. The nuns were not very pleased about that. I, that was probably the worst thing I ever did in grade school. And uh, so I was in trouble a lot. And uh, Went on to high school. High school was on a college campus, military school. We drank like kids do in college. We had fraternities and pledged them. And we were, uh, of my five closest friends, four of us are now college anonymous. One's an Al-Anon. I, went, I had lunch with the guy who's an Al-Anon with my college roommate. We were like the odd couple. He was, you know, much better put together than I was. And I was, you know, just falling apart at the seams. And we roomed together for a couple of years in Notre Dame. Uh, so by the time I finished high school, I was... I had a hell of a drinking problem. A couple of us had almost died of alcohol poisoning. Uh, one of the fraternities turned me down because of my drinking problem. We had a, I'd been arrested, you know, for making ID cards. I'd been in car accidents. I'd been, we had, you know, for high school, we were pretty, we were drinking one or two nights a week, uh, more when our parents were out of town. Our families at that time were heavy drinking families. Not all of them were alcoholic, but the cocktail parties were just prolific, you know. So we started out, you know, going to weddings and all that sort of thing, and there was an awful lot of alcohol around me. All my life, I had a wonderful family. I'm one of seven kids, got great brothers and sisters, and had a wonderful experience growing up. When I went away to college, I had a chance, I was, because I was always in so much trouble because of my drinking, I thought I could get away from the authority. My father was a pretty strict guy, nice man, but he wasn't very pleased with his punk out drinking and his punk out driving his car. Police weren't very pleased about it, and I thought if I could just get on a college campus, hell, you know, my drinking would become normal like everybody else's, only that didn't happen to me. My drinking accelerated. And it got worse. I just couldn't put the brakes on. I mean, I went down to Notre Dame. When I went to Notre Dame, there was, uh, we were the first year that didn't have lights out at 1030. I mean, that's how, I mean, you talk about strict. I mean, now, you know, you can have a zebra living in your room and they don't care. But I mean, it was, in those days, they had daily mass and different sorts of things. And I wasn't, you know, so I'm in trouble. I can't shut it down. I'm going to school. First year, I have a, about a B average. Second year, I got about a 2.5. Third year, I got about a 2. And I'm going down. I'm civil engineering. I'm carrying 25 credits a semester. And I'm going to school one or two days a week. <laughs> you know, and I got about 35 hours of class. And I'm not, I got an award for having never attended a class. It's the only student the teacher had ever had who had never attended a class. Citizen, you should well. And, uh, <laughs> So I got into my senior year, and I just couldn't run it out anymore. I just quit, walked out in the middle of my senior year. I was in the yearbook. I had my class ring. I just, I couldn't have bluffed it. I mean, it was just done. It's kind of tough to bluff your way through a thermodynamics exam. You know, I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> alcoholics should be able to do it, but I mean, it just, there wasn't any, no, there wasn't, as glib as I may have been, there wasn't any way I was going to get that done. I had five guys in my class petitioned to have me removed from the, class of civil engineering. That's how I, I was the class drunk. They used my room to study in because I was almost never in it. <laughs> I went back down. That was always a piece of unfinished business for me. It's funny you heard Peg talk about that college thing. It was, you know, people asked you where you went to school and you never know whether to say where you went or where you graduated or what. It was always, you know, simple questions for alcoholics aren't simple. You know, you ask someone, you know, are you married? And there's this long pause. <laughs> and it, it isn't that we don't know. We're just not sure how much you want to really know at the moment when you ask a social question like that, you know. Do you have any children? And there's this kind of perplexed, pained look on their face. Do you work? You know, I mean, just simple questions, you know, are kind of, kind of tough for alcoholics. I was due to be commissioned. I was in the ROTC. I was due to be commissioned at June as an officer, and I had to get a medical release. And the medical release I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed an alcoholic when I was 19. By a psychiatrist who I didn't think knew much about what he was talking about. But it got me out of service. I came home. I finished school. When I finished school, the family asked me to leave home. He said, we love you and we care about you, but you're just, you know, you're a mess. You can't follow the rules and you're always in trouble. And got six other kids. It's not working very well. And you got to go on. So I armed with my degree and my newfound freedom. I struck out to make 
I marked on the roll. I took a position at the carry-out boy in a liquor store. And, uh, went over, I uh, almost killed a little girl back in out of the driveway with that truck drunk one morning. Uh, she was unhurt, but it was one of the most traumatic experiences I had. Lost that job for going 80 miles an hour with a delivery truck. Took a job as a waiter. I'm working as a waiter in downtown Minneapolis at a private club. I live in St. Paul, six miles away. I think in the six, three or four months I worked as a waiter, I made it home like four days. I just had a couple of bags of clothes and a locker. Went to work in the morning, took, you know, drank a six-pack of beer, took a deck string, went to work, and worked as a waiter from 11 to 2. From 2 to 5, I drank beer at a bar, and at 5 or 6, I went and bought a fifth and put it in my locker and drank it. And that was pretty much all it was day after day. And... uh I, you know, never, didn't have a place to stay, so I used to sleep around with waitresses and waiters and different people. You know, Dr. Seuss, the child author, those are photographs of people I live with during that <laughs> period of time of my life. It was an interesting period of time. And, uh, I got in trouble. I got beat up one night at a party and got my face kicked in and they fired me as a waiter because I didn't look well enough to serve food. And I, I had no, I had no place to go. Then I, I went home to my family and I said, can I come back? And they said, yeah, if you follow certain rules, you can come back. And I went back and I found, you know, alcoholism meant a lot of different things. Maybe what it meant more than anything else is about every six months I had to start my life over. We're always starting over. We don't finish much, but we know a hell of a lot about starting over. I really didn't want my, it looked like I was self-destructive. It looked like it was a plan. I didn't want my life to be like that. I wanted my life to be much like my brothers and sisters, but I just didn't seem to be able to get it on track. I, want, I thought if I could order my life, get married, get a job, you know, so I started in that process. I got engaged to a woman that I'd gone with for a couple of years and broken up with for a year, and we became engaged and married. Today, she's my very lovely wife, Linda. Neat lady. I wish she were here with me this weekend. She's a real active member of Al-Anon. That's been important. My story is kind of tacky because I had problems in sobriety. And I know that most of you haven't. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of sad. It's, uh, I mean, I know that most people come in and get sober and that's okay. And, uh, but I've had issues even in sobriety. And, uh, they have always have one person like that every weekend. So they kind of make an example of them. So I'm how not to be is, is how this is this morning. So I got engaged and married, I got a job, I got a car, and I thought, boy, it's really, you know, my life's on track now, only I, you know, continue to drink, and I'm getting in trouble, and I'm at a, now I'm the company drunk rather than the class drunk, and I'm at a company full of engineers, I don't know why I kept following engineers around, but I, you know, I'm used up my sick leave in the first two months of work, and I'm, you know, late and in trouble, and quit that job, took a job selling business equipment, I'm now selling business equipment, and I'm in trouble at this company, and I'm... But I was into that job about six or seven weeks, and I went out in a four-day drunk the first couple of days I called in, and the next couple of days I didn't. I woke up after an extended blackout in a friend's apartment, and I was just panicked. It was just one of those mornings you wake up, and you just you have little glimpses of what happened the night before. I'm in the same suit I've been in for four days, and I'm just panicked. I don't know if I have a job. I don't know if, you know, I haven't seen Linda in a couple of days, and she's getting kind of fed up with my routine, and I... My family is barely putting up with me until I get married. You know, they're having talks with my fiancé about whether she's really sure. You know, most families are, you know, you think as much as they wanted to get rid of me, they would have left her alone, you know, but they're talking with her. And I, all of a sudden, the recommendation of my father and my psychiatrist that I look into Alcoholics Anonymous didn't seem so dumb. I had a psychiatrist that knew about alcoholism. I saw that man about three weeks ago. And he's about, I don't know, he must be 75 or 80 years old now, but I wound up... We always talk about, <coughs> my wife was a psychiatric nurse working in an alcoholism ward when we got married. And a psychiatric, I wasn't that kind of an alcoholic. I explained to her that I was a different kind of alcoholic than I had. I, I, I didn't want her to think I was like the guys in the ward. But uh, That man diagnosed me as an alcoholic, and he recommended that I went to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 19 years old. Not bad. For, we keep hearing a lot of people don't know about the disease, but there are some people who know about the disease. So I called AA. Got a guy at the central office, talked to him for about 20 minutes. He called a couple of other guys on the phone, and I met two guys at a cafe at 4 o'clock in the afternoon one Thursday in July of 1967. That day my life changed. Kind of a funny day. I went over there. Not knowing what to expect. When you're young and in trouble, you talk to a lot of authority figures. You're talking to, I was a Catholic, so I'm talking to priests and bishops and deans and presidents of colleges and their high schools and 
lawyers and doctors and psychologists, and they're always bringing you to someone. And then you sit down in those meetings, you're all, you know, very, usually very close to a time there's been some problem, and then some, they're asking you a bunch of questions. When they're done asking you the question, they make a recommendation of what you should do. I kind of thought this might be what went on. I sent these two guys out from AA, and I thought they'd interview me, and then, you know, give me some recommendations, only that didn't happen at all. They sat me down in that booth. They knew how to make a 12-step call. One guy had six years, one guy had six months. And they told me what their drinking had been like, what had happened to them, and what their life was like today. First time in my life I'd ever talked to someone who had the problem of drinking, who had a solution for it. And it was just, my life changed. One of the great traditions we have in Alcoholics Anonymous is we share our experience, strength, and hope, not our ideas. There's a power when you share your life with someone. And it's irreplaceable, and I hope of all the treasures that we have, if we don't get so formal that we start handing out tracts in AA, that we still sit down with someone, look at them eyeball to eyeball, and talk about the experiences in our own life. Because I could have said to those men, I don't want to do what you did, but there was no way that I, there was no business. They weren't getting paid for being there. No one was getting a toaster for signing me up. They were just there. <laughs> they were just there. And they told me that they were there as much for themselves as they were for me. And I could see about halfway into that meeting with those men, that's exactly true. And that was one of the most important days of my life. I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that night. Over a brief period of time, I was to make a couple of discoveries which literally changed my life. And the uh, first discovery was that alcoholism is a disease. And I'd say, well, who the heck doesn't know alcoholism is a disease? I didn't know alcoholism is a disease. I thought it was just a drinking problem. I thought you were, you know, came to A because your life was just in trouble. And that's what I did. But I was told that alcoholism was a disease that affected me as a total person. It was physical, but also mental and spiritual. And once I crossed the line from problem drinking into alcoholism, my alcoholism affected me all the time. When I was drinking and when I was not drinking. I can't tell you how important it was for me to find out that there was a mental or spiritual or emotional aspect of the disease of alcoholism. Because I just knew that if all they said was just don't drink. Just before I went back to my senior year at school, I got into a lot of trouble and I was beaten and robbed and rolled and pistol whipped and shot at and thrown out of the second or third story of a hotel and ended up in the, in the alley. Ended up in a hospital. They were going to patch me up. <clears throat> they patched me up. I ended up in a psych ward. They were not going to let me go back to my senior year at school. And they let me go back on the condition that I wouldn't drink, and I went back and I didn't drink for six, for three months. And my life didn't instantaneously get better. I didn't all of a sudden become what I thought you were telling me I'd become if I just wouldn't drink. It's, my life didn't turn around. I didn't become an A student or a model kid. And I thought I proved two things to myself. Was one is I was a daily drinker and I just quit for three months, so obviously I can quit any time I want to. And number two is drink must not be my problem because I just quit drinking and my problem didn't go away. Because I thought what you were telling me was wrong with me was swallowing bourbon. I remember one old timer said, he said, you don't have a drinking problem. I said, could you put that in writing? <laughs> and he said, no, smart Alec. He said, you've got a drinking problem. But if all you had was a drinking problem, all you'd have to do is quit. He said, have you ever quit? And I said, yeah, I quit. He said, did it work? I said, no, it didn't work. So I didn't think so, because what's wrong with us is alcoholism. The symptom of alcoholism is a drinking problem, but we do an AA. Once we take our last drink of alcohol, we use the 12 steps of the recovery program of AA to find a different way to live. A different way to live that's sufficiently better so you don't have to go back to drugs or booze and do something for you that you're unwilling or unable to do for yourself. And if you don't find another way to live, you're going to go back. I think that's one of the most profound and true things anybody's ever told me. The other discovery I made is there were a lot of people in those rooms who had drunk an awful lot of booze and taken a lot of drugs. Now they weren't doing it. The only observable reason for them not doing it is they liked what they found in sobriety better than what they found in a bottle. And I thought if I ever quit drinking, my life would be over. I had so much invested in my drinking. But I listened to your story. I listened, you know, you were out there chasing it pretty damn good. Then you got to the point where you had to shut it down. But your lives weren't over. There was a zest and a vitality and a vigor. It's kind of like Peggy. I mean, there was just an energy, not all like Peggy. Most of them are in the middle. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, but there was a spirit. There's a spirit, much like Peggy, that, that attracted me from the very first time I came in. So I liked AA. I was given a gift. I, I have, Peggy talked about those people in the bar that might need it more, be more worthy, have more trouble. That needed it. I have. Well, I can't tell you how many people I have watched come into Alcoholics Anonymous. Every time they, I was the youngest guy in our group for two years, and I got more attention, and it was just wonderful. But every time a young person came in for about two or three years, they brought them to me, and I, you know, I tried to sponsor them, and I tried to work with them, and I, I mean, there must have been a hundred young men and women who I gave some support to or interacted with over a period of time. And God, I don't think there's four. 
that I could put a hand on that are still around. So my gift was I was allowed to stay. I don't know why I was allowed to love AA for the moment I walked in the door, and I don't think that had a thing to do with me. It was a gift. Absolutely a gift. And I'm so grateful that I stayed. If I had to make a big change in my life, if you don't make a change, you don't stay. Alcoholics Anonymous is about change. I didn't know that. I kept on listening to the meetings, and they never talked all that much about alcohol. They were kept talking about, I, I'd go after the meetings, and I'd go to an 8 o'clock meeting, Linda would go downstairs to the Al-Anon meeting, I'd be upstairs at the AA meeting, and we'd get out of there about 11 o'clock at night, and after, from 8 to 9 or 15, we'd have a meeting, and for about 9.15, I'd hang out, and I'd listen to Warren and Bill and some of these guys talk to these other guys. And they were talking about problems with marriages, they were talking about problems at work, and they were talking about money, and they were making out lists of bills, and they were talking about, I mean, I, <clears throat> so what in the hell does this have to do, you know, I'm here because i got a problem with drinking. Wasn't too long before I figured out that they were talking about living. Talking about changing the conditions of their lives and the attitude and some of the values that they had. The very first thing that I had to do is I had a wall, a barrier built up between me and you. That that was a defense mechanism in my life. I needed that defense mechanism to hide the parts of me that I didn't want you to see. If you don't tear that down, you're going to have deep trouble in Alcoholics Anonymous. Clancy says that maybe if there was a flag that all members of AA could pledge their allegiance to, the flag would say, I'm different. And I think most of us have a true sense of uniqueness. If you don't dent that sense of uniqueness, I think you're going to die in AA. Because if you're truly unique, what worked for me won't work for you. And there comes, you have to at least get to a point where you start to believe that the program that worked in someone else's life could work in yours. I came to believe that when I came to meetings and started to interact with my sponsor, and then when I took my fourth and fifth step, I took that wall and I tore it down. The thinking that went on behind that wall said, you, you like me, but you only like what I let you see about me. But there's a lot of things about me that you don't know about, a lot of things you can't see, and I think if you saw all those things about me, you'd hate me. Because I hate me. Who knows more what a slimy, irresponsible, unworthy person I am than me. I was walking around comparing my insides with your outsides. The only way you come out doing that is second best. But I got tough enough, and I got hurt enough, and afraid enough, that I tore that wall down, and for the first time in my life, I shared the whole deck of cards with someone. Up until that time, different people around me had different pieces of information, my parents and brothers and sisters and workers, and but no one ever had all of it. And I'd kill you with a piece you didn't have. You know, you'd come to me and I'd ask you for help and you'd make a recommendation and I'd say, yeah, in my mind I could say, you're making a recommendation because of what you know, but there's these two or three things that you don't know and I think if you knew those things, I wouldn't tell you those things. But I'd, I'd be able to neutralize your advice to me. And this is one of the things that we're talking about sponsorship. You know, one of the things, but there's such a value. Friday night we had a little panel on sponsorship. And I know that there's a tendency to want to go out and pick a perfect sponsor, but it's like going out and picking perfect parents. You don't need perfect parents. You wouldn't be who you were if you didn't have those two people. You just wouldn't be who you were. If you didn't have the genetic makeup, biological makeup of those two people, you wouldn't be who you were. You had to have those two people to be you. And I think that God speaks through parents to their children. Imperfect parents, good and bad. I think that's the channel for most of the information that a child's supposed to learn. I think God speaks through sponsors to people in AA. Imperfect sponsors. They're just a channel. They're not supposed to be, they're not the reservoir. They know that they don't hold all this information. They just make themselves willing and a lot of information gets passed through them to you. And I, it's just amazing. One of the things that has always astounded me about AA is even people who sometimes have trouble living the program themselves will almost never get bad advice to another member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I, I have heard, if you sat down to someone who's having trouble sometimes, and they sat down and you asked them for advice, you could often get some, because they want the very, there's something about all of us that want the very best. When we have that responsibility, when someone comes to you and says, what do you think I have to do? The very best comes out in that process. So I tore my wall down and I shared my life with someone and I made a discovery. The discovery was I'm not unique. My personality may be unique, but not my illness and not my behavior, not my experience and not my feeling. And maybe for the first time in my life, I started to have a sense of hope that maybe what worked in your life could work in mine. But you know, I drank twice after walking in the front door of AA. I came in in July of 67. I drank once on a business trip in September or August. And then I had almost three months of sobriety and I got married. I drank on my honeymoon. We honeymooned in Acapulco. You know where the divers dive off those cliffs? And I, I dove off those cliffs in my last run. I was uh, I was in the audience watching a world's high diving contest. And after about nine planters punches, I thought, I could do that. I could do that. My wife said, why would you want to do that? 
and I went over and introduced myself to the ex-president of Mexico. He wasn't very impressed with that, and I went down and I climbed, dove off the one side, climbed up the cliff, split my swimsuit, cut my leg. My wife's going absolutely nuts. I did not, you know, got up to about 85 feet, got stuck, couldn't get up, couldn't get down. And I'm standing on this <laughs> cliff looking, waiting for the, you know, the water comes in and goes out. And you're supposed to die when the water's in. And, uh... I'm trying to figure out, but that's not, uh, that isn't so tough. I mean, it looks like it's tough, that part isn't so But I'm thinking about, should I dive or should I jump? It's a small thing. I mean, it's just... <clears throat> and I'm really not sure whether I want to dive or want to jump. So I, long story short, I dove. If I would have jumped, I would have died. <clears throat> you can't get out far enough horizontally <clears throat> to do that. Now, I don't, I mean, I literally was like a flip of a coin. I thought, ah, hell, I'll die. And uh, made it. We went back. My wife and I went back and vacationed at that hotel probably 10 or 15 times. One night we were out looking at the setting sun, and I looked at the other divers out, and I said, you know, I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever done. She said, honey, it's not even in the top 10. (laughs) (laughs) She has a different view of our lives together. I think it's kind of unfair. She has kind of an adult view. I don't know what that, I mean... Kind of a well-developed, mature person. I think it's unfair that she brings that attitude <laughs> to our relationship. Another thing that's always amazed me is how you can make profound discoveries in Alcoholics Anonymous that are life-changing. And if you don't support those discoveries, it may be as if they never happened to you a year after they happened. So many of us have had surrender. When Peggy ta- I love what Peggy talked about, that you get surrendered, because that's what I've been struggling with, Sur- you know, getting myself surrendered to some issues I've got in my life. How can you get surrendered, and then a year later, a month later, two years later, be unsurrendered? How can you have that experience? You know, I don't know. I guess Peter lived with Christ for three years. He gets in a little trouble, gets in the garden, and he says, Jesus, who? You know, I mean, they're putting a little pressure on him. You know, he lived with God, and he's got trouble, you know. <laughs> but I think, no, but it is amazing. You really think that you, but, but there is some, some aspect of spirituality. There's some other quality of spirituality that is not intellectual. Because you, you can hold the intellectual experience, you can hold the concept. I can tell you about what happened, I can tell you where to go and what to do to try to have it happen to you. But I cannot just snap my fingers and have that power be present to me. There's some, there's... There's another element of spirituality that takes an aspect of surrender. Chuck Chamberlain, who's I think one of the most dynamic members of AA I had ever met. He's Richard Chamberlain's dad, that actor, and he was he was a unbelievable man. He was a man that I think was a dimension of spirituality which was second to none that I ran into in AA. And uh why the hell did I bring him up? Oh <laughs> surrender. It's okay. I'm really not like Peggy. There's, I mean, no, I just want to make that clear. <laughs> or she could be contagious. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's a number of explanations. Of it. Chamberlain one time went to a conference. He never did um, very much, many things to my limited knowledge outside of AA, but he went to the Peachford Conference on Alcoholism. They asked him to go and give an address, and he went to it, and they had all the experts in alcoholism from all over North America, from what I understood. And I was standing next to someone after he had been to that conference, and they were asking him about it, and they said, what did you think of the Peachford Conference, and what insight did you get from all the experts and all the people? And many of the experts, of course, were also recovered, so it wasn't like there was just outside people. And Chuck looked over at the guy, and he said, they don't know much about surrender. And I thought, in a sentence, he put his finger, because if you had to go one place and put your finger on what we have, surrender. It's literally the opening for everything that's happened to anybody who's sitting in this room. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I, came, I surrendered what I thought my alcoholism was. To, I gave you my drinking, I gave you my going to bars, I gave you different behavior that I couldn't do sober, and I quit drinking on December the 10th, 1967. But unbeknownst to me, I started to go back out in life, and I started to have issues that I didn't think I should have, and I started to hide and cover up issues in sobriety. So I'd be, you know, everybody was telling me what a good member of AA I was, and I was having certain issues, and some of them I'd share with my sponsor, and some of them I wouldn't, and some of them I'd, you know, so I started to brick by brick build my wall back up sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, thanks a lot for helping me with my drinking problem, but stay out of my gambling. 
Now, I had my idea, I had a kind of a naive idea. I've always been an idealist, which is also, and I think too much. If there's one thing I walk away from this weekend, that I'm gonna, I just think too much. And when Peggy said, have you ever been happy thinking about yourself? What a crappy question. The, uh, but I've been an idealist. And if you would have asked me what recovery was, I would have said recovery is the absence of problems. You would have asked me for a definition. I would have looked at a lot of the older sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous and I would have said, they don't have problems. Now, I'm at meetings with these people. How can you be at meetings with people and not know the issues of their life? Because they were talking about different things. Well, you have to be very self-centered. <laughs> That's all you have to do. You can just be around lots of other people and just almost not notice them if you're self-obsessed. And I, so, I had this vague awareness that there were other people in the room, and uh, I did. I mean, I, I had a sense of being with other people, and, and that even a few of them had lives, but, you know, it was limited. But I thought that if I would get to a certain point and get the right information and get these steps in my life, I would solve the problems of my life. Not. Not. Okay. So I started to have problems I didn't think I should have, so I started to hide and cover them up. I had issues of gambling. I had issues of getting up in the morning. I had issues of going to bed at night. I had issues of getting to work. I had issues of staying to work. I spent more money than I made. If you do that over a long period of time, you have a thing called debts. <laughs> I had problems with marriage. I had issues with parenting. I had issues with life. And I thought, okay... I'll buy it. I'm an alcoholic. You got the answer for alcoholism, right? You got the answer and I got the problem. I got about a six or seven other things that are going on in my life that are tearing my life apart. And if I've got the problem and you got the answer, you ought to be able to make those things go away. And hell, it might take a year. I mean, I know it's not going to happen overnight. And, you know, it might... Not that funny. <laughs> this is one of the most serious parts of my talk. But... <laughs> And, you know, now I had every one of those issues in my life in my first year of sobriety and almost did not notice them. I, I mean, I can't tell you why that is. I was given a grace period where I came into AA and I was just so bloody excited about being an alcoholic Anonymous, learning all the things that there was to learn and going to the meetings. And it was just like, well, we call it a honeymoon. It was just exactly like a honeymoon. And then towards the end of that period of time, I started to get a sense that there were, I needed a program. And the program had to do with living. And I started to get in touch. One by one, I got some of the issues of my life handed to me. I'm glad I didn't get them all handed to me at once, because I don't know if I could have stayed. So one by one, I get put in front of the issues of my life, what kind of a husband I'm being. And both of Linda and I, newly married, first year, kind of disappointed to both of us. You know, I mean, she's, she saw more of me. I'm going to six or seven meetings a week. She didn't see me in our first year of marriage. We had a, you know, fairly active sex life, and when I quit drinking, my sex life went someplace. I think it went to Indiana, but it was not in Minnesota. I don't know where it went, but it was not where I wanted it to be. And I'm real worried about it, real intimidated. It's my first year of marriage. It's supposed to be, you know, right up there, but it, it ain't right up there. And uh, and I'm not sleeping well, and I got all those issues that a lot of people have in their first year. But all of a sudden, the things that I expected to have happen, I'm a poor salesman. Now I'm sober. should be a great salesman. Okay? Start to have kids, you know, supposed to be great fathers. So I start meeting the imperfections of my life in very substantial areas, and I start building the wall back up. And I'm five or six years sober with very serious issues in my life, and I'm feeling like I'm a failure. I'm feeling like, you know, I'm a great starter. I'm a poor finisher. I never finish anything. But I don't longer think that, you know, I'm sober. I'm working on my program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm taking the steps. But I'm not making a change. And I'm trying as hard as I know how to do to change, and I'm making no progress. And I'm thinking, maybe there's something else wrong with me. And I think that this happens to a lot of people. I think somewhere between four and ten years, you're going to get your life handed to you in recovery. You're going to have, And don't waste so much on the time. The time isn't important. But I know you're not going to get it all done in one or two years. But somewhere in what I call the early middle years of sobriety, you're going to have a second come-to-God meeting with you. And it's kind of where your alcohol, you know, it's alcoholism, not alcoholism. The physical part goes away, but the mental and spiritual part go someplace and live. <laughs> and we have, to, and 
and they often express themselves in little issues and areas of our lives, in our sexuality, and our eating, and our work, and our marriages, and our relationships, and work. I mean, it all comes out in relationships. And we just save the very best for the closest people in our lives. Just kind of a gift. And uh, so I'm going forward, and it seems like I'm going backwards. There's something about it really, but you know, it isn't going backwards. I was going forward. What happened to me is you were getting me more honest. You were tearing down my defense mechanisms, and I was looking at my life more clearly. I wasn't able to hide and stuff the issues of my life. I was not going backwards. But it sure as hell felt like it because it looked I was getting more knowledge and more insight into what was not working in my life. And at four or five years, I'm pretty uncomfortable about some of the issues that are going on in my life. I mean, I'm at my gambling, my money, my parenting. I mean, these are serious deals and they're not, and these are not annual problems. These are daily problems. I mean, you know, and it's just, and I'm, now, about the sixth or seventh year, it's getting uncomfortable enough that I'm either going to commit suicide or talk to my sponsor. You know, you're right on the edge, you know, where you're just, you know, one of those really tough things that you're going to do. Not quite sure. Going to flip a coin, jump or dive, talk, you know. The problem was with me is I knew what the answer was. The answer was power greater than yourself. But there's a problem with that is if you can't fulfill the conditions of the relationship, how do you go to God and say, God, I'm going to turn myself in. I need help. People who seem to have their life going pretty well got a relationship with you. I want to do that. God's going to say, fine, come ahead. I'm going to say, what do you want me to do, God? And God's going to say, quit gambling. Get up in the morning. Go to work. Stay at work. Be a loving husband and a gentle father. Don't spend more money than you make. I'm going to say, hell, if I knew how to do all those things, I wouldn't need God. Okay, but how do you go to God if you can't do those things? My idea was, as soon as I clean my act up, I'll have a relationship with God. But it isn't going to work to go try to have a relationship with God when you can't live your life okay. And I was caught in that place for almost two years. Finally, I just literally got at the end of my rope. I mean, I just, you know, I'm seven or eight years sober. I'm real active in service and starting to give AA talks. I remember, and my life just is full of pain. My pigeons are making more progress than I'm making. I mean, I am stuck in a way that I haven't felt like I'm stuck. And I feel like a failure. And I feel a little dirty. And I didn't feel very good about my AA program. And I went back to the steps with a ferocity that I don't that I hadn't been able to summon in quite some time. And I went back and I found out what step one meant to me sober seven and a half or eight years in alcoholic Anonymous. I found out about powerlessness and unmanageability. Unmanageability was so damn obvious it wasn't even an issue. But to just surrender yourself. I surrendered myself again when I was eight years sober in alcoholic Anonymous. The second step was a step, and I'm not going to go all the way through these, but I said, okay, I'm going to talk just a little bit about one. I'm going to say a couple of words. I'm going to talk about two. And I went to uh, the, uh, if she would have asked me if I had an issue with step two, I would have said I have, I have absolutely no issue with step two. I believe step two, okay, step one and two are where my issues were. I, I always believed for us that God would restore us to sanity. I just lost belief in eight years of sobriety he was going to restore me to sanity. Because I'm eight years sober and my life is screwed. I'm trying like mad. I mean, I have, I'm in much debt at eight years in sobriety as I was in my first year of sobriety. I paid back seven or eight grand, which was like a year and a half salary when I came in A. I'm now seven or eight or nine or ten thousand bucks in debt. I still can't work. I'm gambling. I'm making five or ten grand a year playing backgammon, but I'm gambling about 25 hours to 30 hours a week. I'm, you know, coming home late. I'm in trouble and I'm angry with my kids and I'm sometimes physical with my kids and Linda is not all that happy with me and I got issues. I mean, I got real, live, daily issues in my life. And I'm not feeling very good about this thing. And I'm, I lost the belief that God was going to restore me to sanity. And at eight years of sobriety, I had to regain that belief. And I regained it by looking at you. Okay? I've been so self-obsessed for that period of time as my problems got worse, I turned inward and I started to kind of protect myself. And I built that wall back up. But I got my eyes, a lot. My, I think the retaking of the first step allowed my eyes to open up where I could see you. And I started to see the dignity with which you were taking on your problems. I saw the changes. I saw, I mean, it was just, I saw, I started to be able to see the miracles again. And I started, I recame to believe that God would restore me to sanity at eight years. But I, I, I want you to know that I had lost that belief. And I was subtle. Because I believed the concept and I believed it for you. I just didn't believe it for me. I took my third step on my need with my sponsor in his office. And I did a fourth step and I did a fifth step. And I went to that man and I said, be careful when I'm done. I'm going to do whatever you recommend that I do. I said, I'm in a terrific amount of pain. I know the pains are necessary. I think I'm ready to change whatever I have to change. One of the things he wanted me to do was go to a psychologist. 
and I can't tell you how much I didn't want to go to a psych house. I had so much issues about failure and success and work. I mean, that was, you know, just an enormous amount. I thought that was like an admission. My program didn't work. I thought, you know, AA should be enough. You shouldn't have to go do that. But I thought I, I promised I would, so I went and I went to a clinical psychologist. And I got in touch with some things that I was able to bring back in my program, which helped change my life again. When we were at a session <coughs> with Linda, and I got the two kids. We had our two children at that time. We now have three at the session. We're talking about failure. She said, why? If you, I started to find out in my middle years of sobriety how afraid I was. I never knew. I must have been so afraid I couldn't even talk about how afraid I was. But he's in there and he's saying, what's so bad about failure? I mean, I wanted to rip his nose off. I said, you know, I mean, I said, look, you jerk, you're a doctor. I said, you could screw your whole thing up and tomorrow all you got to do, you could file bankruptcy and all you got to do is move down the hall, put your shingle back up and you're back making a hundred grand a year. I said, I'm a guy, my business is about to go down the chute. And I said, I'm a businessman. You, you don't, you file bankruptcy, you're done. You lose everything you have and your life's over. He looked over at my wife and he said, if I've lost everything he had, would he lose you? Linda said, no, wouldn't lose me. He looked over at Billy and Peter, and he said, if your dad lost everything he had, would he lose you? And the kids said, no, he wouldn't lose me. And all of a sudden, I started to have a sense, like, maybe I could survive failing. If you can't fail, you can't play. You can't play. I was the guy who had a football uniform, a helmet. I was on the team. I did the calisthenics. I did the locker room. I did all the exercise, but when they blew the whistle and went to block and tackle, I went up in the stands. Because I don't block and tackle. But there's something about life. There's no stands. There's no place to hide. It's all playing field. I'm a guy who, if we're going to have a foot race, i got great tennis shoes, i got a great little t-shirt, and I talk and sound like a runner. And you think, and I'm the guy from Minnesota. I won a couple of races in Minnesota. And I'm going to sound like I know what I'm doing. But somewhere during that race, I'm going to be in the lead for the first, you know, up in the top five or ten people for the first mile or so. But somewhere towards the third and half end of that race, I'm going to fall down, hold my leg, and quit. And when the race is over, they're going to say, what happened to that guy from Minnesota? And they're going to say, geez, I don't know. He was up. He was doing real well. He was way up, you know, in front. I think he won some races up. He must have pulled a muscle or something. If you could have followed me around in a helicopter in my life, you could have guessed within 25 feet when I was going to fall down. Because I never finished anything. I never finished anything. And I got a sense like maybe I could survive failing. Not too long after I was doing that fist step, I was in my living room. I had one of the worst days in my sobriety I'd ever had. One of those days where I, I didn't do a lot of things that I was supposed to do, and I did a whole bunch of things I wasn't supposed to do. I got up late for work, got to work late, left early, went downtown, got into a backgammon game. I played backgammon for about 12 hours. I missed dinner. I missed AA. You know, I came home, got in a fight with my wife, and slapped one of the kids. It was one of those days where you would have liked them to have done a video of it and send it to the general service office to see what eight years of sobriety could do for you. It was one of those, you know, just one of those perfect days where you just, you know. I went back in the living room, and I I was sitting down. I was reading some non-conference approved literature, and I was, I was, uh, and I said, gee, it happened again. I said, what do you mean it happened again? I said, you know, another day like that. I started out, it was going to be an okay day, and it just turned to crap. And all of a sudden I realized that was a bunch of alone. I mean, it felt like I was in a blackout. It felt like, you know, the, the habits of my life were so strong, it's almost as if I didn't choose them, they chose me. And I woke up sometime late in the day, and I said, gee, it happened. And all of a sudden I realized my life was the way it was because I chose it and designed it to be the way it was. The lie that holds things in place is the lie that held things in place in my life is I sounded like I didn't want to gamble. If I went and talked to you and talked to my sponsor, I'm saying i got a gambling problem I'm working on. The fact was, is I wanted to gamble. For as much money as I wanted to gamble, whenever I wanted to gamble and not have problems because of gambling. Okay? I wanted my children to love me and not spend time with my children. I wanted my wife to love me and not spend time with my wife. I wanted to spend money whenever the hell I wanted to spend it and not have money problems. That's not the design of life. The things that I would talk to you about problems were my treasures. They were my design. They were the things that I protected. If it sounded like I wanted to get rid of them, try to get close to them and talk to me about getting rid of them, and you'd find out that the heat got turned up the closer we got to three or four issues in my life. 
I protected those things, built little fences around them, put skulls and crossbones on them, you know, put boards over the closet door. You know, we all talk like we'd like to have God come in our lives. For most of us, God had come down and, you know, we'd go meet some God's coming to Jasper, Indiana. I said, that's just wonderful. Won't that be just terrific? Yeah, but he's coming to your house. Well, that's okay. I don't know why he'd want to come to my house, you know, if he's coming to Jasper, Indiana. Well, he doesn't just want to come to your house. He wants to come into your house. He doesn't want to just come in your house. He wants to go in your bedroom. He doesn't want to come into your bedroom. He wants to go to the closet with the skull on it and the boards nailed up over the door. And he wants to go in the closet, into the dresser, into the lockbox. Most of us aren't real happy to have that kind of a visitation. We'd like him downtown. <laughs> kind of a public setting, you know, but we don't... <clears throat> okay. But all of a sudden I realized my life was the way it was because I designed it... And I'd be out of fear, out of fear of having my life be the way it was, I was given the opportunity to take the sixth and the seventh step of the program of AA. I had spent eight years trying to get rid of my defects of character. I don't have the power to get rid of my defects of character. I'm responsible, but I'm a pipe. I'm not the well. I'm not the source. It happens through me, not by me. I am surrendered. I do not surrender. And I got down on my knees that night. And I took the sixth step, which says we're entirely ready to have government with defects of character. And the seventh step is we humbly ask to remove my shortcomings and my life changed. Five of the major issues of my life walked out of my life that night. Now, I needed to support that change. Now, that night, when I came into AA, I gave you my alcoholism. I didn't give you my sex life for gambling or work. That night, I put my life in the game. There was no more division. You know how we change in AA? A doctor doesn't heal. Creates an aseptic environment in which healing can take place and God heals. <clears throat> a farmer doesn't grow. Creates a fertile soil, plants a seed, creates an atmosphere in which growth can take place and God grows. And we don't change. We create an atmosphere in which change can take place and God changes us. The atmosphere, I think, is the attitude involved in the sixth and the seventh step and the three requirements of being honest, open-minded, and being willing. Now, I'm a guy that when I go on a diet, the first thing I do is I buy a quart of ice cream and some cookies. <laughs> Well, it's the last day I'm going to eat. I mean, it is. It's the last day. I've already had a bad day. I mean, it's already kind of screwed. I'm just going to eat this, just finish it up, so I won't feel bad tomorrow when I'm not eating that I should have had just a little... If you understand that. You understand why you need sponsorships, why you need the program, why you don't... The things that we really kind of laugh and joke about, but a lot of it's not fun. It's not funny the depth that I was in. It's not funny treating my children the way I treated my children. It wasn't funny. My gambling wasn't funny. My not working wasn't funny. There wasn't much funny at that point in my time in my life about that. I hired someone to get me up in the morning. I never missed a hunting trip. I never missed a handball game. I never missed a plane. I just missed work. I turned the finances over to my wife. My wife didn't have the ego issues with money that I had. So I started to put, what I'm telling you is I put in supports to support the change that happened because just the change will go downhill if you don't keep the power of it alive in your life. And I put some structure in my life that helps support that change. And those changes were able to stabilize in my life. The issues that I had about not being able to work and handling my life changed in a period of three or four months. It was like a transformation. All of a sudden I came on where I was the company I was almost losing started to come alive and today or 400 employees and I got a business partner who's got almost 30 years of sobriety we built a successful company you know I have spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours learning how to be a parent I think being a parent is the most demanding experience you can have it seems to take about 125 percent of whatever you got I just is it still is the most demanding area of my life we have three children we have a 24 year old a 21 year old 22 year old <coughs> turned 22 this week and a 13-year-old, all boys, spring-loaded, head-first, 60 miles an hour. Going to <laughs> I started to date my wife about 18 years ago. I've dated my wife every Friday night for the last 18 years. And when I'm out of town on a Friday night, we go out Thursday night or some other night during the week. But I have not. I don't think I've missed three weeks in 18 years. That's one of the most important things. She knows, and I know, that once a week we have each other's undivided attention. It's a real, live, dangerous date. <laughs> no one else goes out on that we had to learn again I had to learn again about how to be romantic I had to learn again about how to be with my wife I had her love and attention it was your love and affection I was out chasing and so I went back and created I went back and started to do the same things when I courted my wife and I've been doing those things and that's been an important element of our relationship 
I haven't gambled since then. I made appointments with my sponsor and deal with my sponsor, but one I'd go to work and one I'd, I'd stay at work. I mean, i just stay in the work. That's a unique idea. I mean, I could see going. <laughs> what do you do if you stay? I mean, that's a, <clears throat> that's a long day. I mean, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, God, that was just magical. Go and stay. <laughs> uh, And uh, my life took off like a rocket. And for the next 10 or 11 or 12 years, the wind was at my back and everything I did worked. I made enough money to burn a white elephant. I had a great relationship with my children and, and wife. I didn't have any gambling issues. And it seemed like it was everything that I had hoped that if I ever really got my act together, if I got my program together, was happening. But it wasn't all quite that way. There was an arrogance that was in my success. You know, there's problems with failure. I dealt with problems of failure most of my life. There's problems with success. There's attitudes that come in. There was an arrogance. I kind of felt like God was doing this for me because I was such a great guy. You know, well, I mean, what a sickening attitude to have in life. I mean, just, you could just put a pain in the ass even to be around that, you know. But I, that was, it was kind of subtle, but it was, and I had so much money. I made a lot of money that I started to get involved in things. And I started to get, when you have a lot of money, you can do whatever the hell you want to do with it. Your life starts to become about what you want it to be. And what all of a sudden, the most important thing in my life became what I wanted. And I, because I had a lot of money, I just went out and got it. If I want it, I get it. Well, that's not a great way to run your life either. And so I'm starting to get more shallow, still active in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm starting to get more things, and I'm, you know, locked into money, and I'm, I think I'm, you know, going downhill. 1986, they passed the Tax Act, which changed my life. My business was in real estate investments, and my life got turned upside down, and most of the things that I had started to get taken away. And boy, when they started to come take my things away, and take my money away, and take my success away, it wasn't like changing clothes, it was like tearing skin. I never realized how deeply I got into that game. I mean, it was like tearing skin. I just thought I was dying. When God cuts your allowance by, you know, you start making 20, 30% of what you used to make, you have to make adjustments. And what I found out is that I hadn't solved all my financial problems. I just made so damn much money, it didn't matter. And all of a sudden, when I started to go backwards, I had to start making adjustments again and start living on a budget. And I found out I still had issues with financing. I still had issues with ego. My wife is back managing our finances. And, it's, you know, I, that isn't how the big shot always wants it done. And we start having conversations about amounts of money that I don't think I should have to have a conversation about. But we're back doing that. And uh, so the last five or six years have been an inter one of the most demanding times I've had in my sobriety. And I've had to learn who I am separate from all those things that I used to have. It isn't like I still don't have things. I still have the same lovely wife and... We just sold the huge house and bought a nice house and we made some changes in our lives and said, reality is difficult. I mean, it really is. I think that, you know, it's a harsh, it's a harsh environment for a sensitive person. But I better make some adjustments to reality. And so today, but those adjustments, I think, are some of the most profound adjustments I've ever made. I never realized how deeply I got involved in things and money and I've been able to find, go back and find out who I was separate from those things. And now I'm starting to go back and be able to try to have some comfort in not knowing. Peggy, that prayer you gave me this morning, that, you know, because I want to know. I mean, I want to know. I want to peek ahead. I just want to know what the story turns out okay. I mean, I know I'm in the middle. I know it's kind of interesting. All I want to do is just see how it's going to come out. But that isn't the design of life. I'm in a business right now that I still don't know if it's, you know, I, I got a couple of serious torpedoes out there. And I don't know. Could they take my business down? Yeah, it's possible. But it's less likely today than it was three years ago. Might I lose everything I have? Yeah, I might lose everything I have. I'm not going to lose my sobriety. I'm not going to lose my wife. I'm not going to lose my family. We've got issues in our family. I've got two sons that are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. One has six years of sobriety. One has two and a half. It is. I'll tell you something. You never wanted this program to work as much as you want it to work until you have a child that needs a program. And they don't want to go to your meetings, and they don't want help from you. Okay? In some cases, they may. But by and large, we are not going to be our children's teachers in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And just pray and hope that wherever they go, they're going to find someone who's really got the program. They've got the big book intact. And my children went out to their places and found their people, and they found great people, and they found the program. And it's, it's just, I can't tell you. My son, who I've been trying to push and shove and yell at and have him do different things in school, just got a new sponsor and he's out voluntarily doing things that I have literally tried to 
you know, and he's doing it for this guy over in Minneapolis. And, uh, <laughs> and I couldn't be more grateful. I just couldn't be more grateful that he now has found a way that he is able to learn and found someone who can teach him. And I went over, my wife and I have a son, we have a son who lives in Madrid and he's worked at the embassy and he's the chairman of the Madrid English-speaking group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And three weeks ago or four weeks ago, we were over there in a meeting. And I'll tell you, it is just, every time I get around a meeting with my children, I just cry. I mean, I don't know what the hell it is. I'm 25 years old, I'm blubbering in this in this meeting. I just, it's just overwhelmed that the power that we're around. I just know that there are a lot of people sitting in the audience tonight that got issues that are going on that are eating them alive. I came into this weekend, and I've got an issue with my 13-year-old that's causing some trouble at school, and I've got this right in front of my nose, and I've got that penny right up against my eye, and all I can see is the penny. And I went and had lunch with Dick. I talked a little bit, and you get to take the penny, and you just get to put it out here. And I've got, and I, I have been overthinking things, and over and over. I am so blessed. When Peggy talked about last night, it's the least you can do. You know, I really am going to change an attitude. I just get on a grind, and I don't like the grind. And I, I mean, it isn't like I'm not grateful, but I just start to focus. My, if you ever want to be unhappy, just give yourself your own undivided attention for a while. Just I mean, <clears throat> take an hour off and think about yourself. You know, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, God, it's just. I mean, they'd have to medicate most of the people in the room if they. I mean, just. I mean, just one hour is about all it takes to screw yourself into the ground. <laughs> But I'm in love with my wife today, and we've got a good family, and I'm self-supporting through my own contributions, and I'm in the game. I mean, I'm blocking and tackling. I'm in the game. It really, really is, and it, and it is a privilege to be in the game. It's a privilege to have partners in the business of living life, to be able to sit in a meeting and talk about that we're taking these spiritual principles and we're putting them in application in our life. What we have is a practice. I used to think that we'd end up with problem-free. We don't end up problem-free. You know what we're promised? We're promised a spiritual awakening. I still have a tendency to get very angry and would like to act out with my son. But you've now gotten me spiritually awake that that almost never happened. I'm not perfect. I'm just awake. I used to do those things in my sleep. I used to hurt people in my sleep and then blame it on them. I was a victim. Okay. You woke me up. You woke me up to life. You woke me up to a level of honesty that I've never been able to have. You put principles in my life through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and I have had a spiritual awakening. As a result of that, I don't often do the things that I would automatically do when I came to you. I don't as often hurt people. And when I, the few times I do, I clean it up. And I clean it up in such a way that I'm less likely to go back and do it. And most of the amends and the things that we have to do are with family. A lot of them. And you can't, you know, there was a time I used to go apologize. Not, you know, I'd do something with my son and I'd go apologize. One more time I'd go apologize. There gets to be a time where what you got to do is stop doing it. I've always known what to do. I just haven't been able to do it. And the access to it is surrender. And I'm back in a step group right now, a new group that we're going through, and we're going through the steps, and it's so apparent to me is that I am back and I want to access the power that comes with surrender because it's the only access I have. Because when I am not surrendered, what I got to use is my intellect. My intellect is not sufficient for the changes I have to make in my life. I want to tell you a story in ending. And the story is about, in India, they have a, when you're from zero to 20 years old, you're a student, and from 20 to 40, you raise a family and run a business. And about from 40, between 40 and 60, you start a transition if you're, on this particular path, you start to transition to put the put spiritual principles into your life and you start phasing out of your family and business. And at 60, you become a sannyasi. And a sannyasi is a person who gives up all their worldly goods and goes travels, you know, much with their begging bowl, much as the, as the Buddhists would, and go traveling through life. It's a story about a sannyasi who comes out of a village and a man comes running up to him and he says, oh, I'm so glad to see you. And the sannyasi says, why? He said, I had a dream last night. The dream was I was going to meet a sannyasi coming out of the village. And he said, what did the dream tell you? And he said, the dream told me that the sannyasi would make me the richest man in the world. He would give me something that he had. The sannyasi went into his little bag that he had, and he went rummaging in it, and he came out with a stone. And it was the largest diamond in the world. And he said, is this it? And the guy grabbed it, and he said, yes, thank you very much. He said, can I have this? And the sannyasi said, of course. They found it in the forest. It's all yours. He took it, and he went away. The man with the diamond went and sat under a tree to meditate, and the sannyasi went off about a half mile away and sat under a tree and meditated. 
And after about six hours, the man with the diamond came back down the road to the sannyasi. And he handed him back the diamond. And he said, could you give me the truth that makes it possible for you to give this diamond to me? Most of my life, I've been out looking for the diamond. And you've given me the things that makes it possible for me to sometimes let go of the diamond. Thank you.